Rick, what's up? The price of gasoline is way up. But other than that, life is good. How about you? Life's good. Um, it's a confusing time. I've been listening to other people's podcasts, just a few, like uh, really interesting. Um, a lot of really smart people out there. Um, you're smart. Uh, <laughs> I'm okay. What do you think about that? I, I think we have the beginnings of a great thing here. So let's just proceed. I, I've been looking at other podcasts as well, and some of them are highly organized and professionally produced podcasts. We are not there yet, but <laughs> we will get there. Well, I'm sure that these podcasts that we're doing will be forever shared with the world because they're great and they're important. And I think a lot of people care about what we have to say, what our guests have to say, mostly, not me, yes. but, um, and not everybody cares about this stuff, but a lot do. A lot do. Uh, and we know a, a few hundred who are, actively pursuing some of these mysteries and you know what i find on some fabulous megalithomania you know hugh yes. newman doing his work i mean these people are doing fabulous work conferences and everything but then you have like 200 people 100 people 50 people that are listening to it and it this stuff is at the forefront what we're doing of a, a big movement pool of knowledge and it's a few hundred people so i think millions of people tens of millions hundreds of millions would find this interesting if it's framed correctly and and if you can make them realize just how much this stuff affects their daily lives and that's the part that's invisible to almost everybody that something that happened 5 10 15 100,000 years ago can affect your life today and what I mean, what does that mean, Rick? Like, you know, why do people not care about the past? They just care about their family and feeding themselves and their job takes all day and they're tired and their marriage isn't great and their kids oh. suck. Um, why don't they care about the past as much? It's that whole day-to-day -day living need thing. They, uh, again, they don't see the importance or the impact of something that happened a long time ago. It, and what is done is done. It's like, no, there are ways around some of it. If you think about it thoroughly. And let's think about what would happen if all our technology was suddenly taken away. I can think of a half a dozen different scenarios where electronic stuff would go poof. And we would be done for decades with internet and telephone and refrigerators. Um, what would the what would the cost in lives be? Probably about ninety percent of human population. So, the things that we can learn from the past can help us survive those scenarios. And when you say, "Oh, well, that won't happen in my lifetime," you can't say that. You just don't know. It could happen at any moment. The right. electrical grid goes out. A solar flare. You have a hundred other possibilities. Um, a lot of people have predicted since the beginning of time, you know, these certain dates that the world's going to come to an end that, and, and people believed it and they believe it and they believe it in their mind. And um, what do you, you know, and then it doesn't happen type thing. Um, why do you think people get so certain that something's going to happen 
and it doesn't? A lot of that has to do with uh, religious dogma. We'll start with that one. We, we have two different major religions, Christianity and Islam, that both, well, and, and Jewish religion too, both, all three predict an end to the world with the same characters involved, I might add. Um, and and the, the, the tribulations and the other parts of the Bible and the Quran that say there will be a chosen few survive and they will be, you know, the ones that are true to their God. Well, that's a dogma. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying it's what's taught. The other thing that uh, if roughly half of the population of the earth believe that there's going to be an end to the world and that their book predicts it, uh, then there will be an end to the world because one of them is going to come up with a way to accomplish it. This is where the Marvel movie universe has predicted human behavior by portraying aliens doing it. And uh, give credos to whoever came up with that. Um, and that one wasn't Stan Lee. But the idea is, is firm. It's sound that someone's going to try to end the human population, except for that chosen few that their book predicts. I don't want to experience any of that, but I want to be prepared for it. It certainly could happen. Um, uh, Rick, tell me about... Uh, Tell me about, let's see, the, tell me about the Oopaloopa Cafe and what you did for many years in the TV, media, radio world. Well, I actually started in uh, blogs, written blogs, uh, with the title and the content. I was doing these stories of interest, uh, much like megalithomania and ancient, origi ancient or origins. Boy, I'm having trouble with that word today. Uh and some of the, the written slash picture slash video blogs that are out there today are now doing and a little more sophisticated because technology is better than what I was doing in 2006, 2007 on up. And I ran it as a written blog for about two years, I think, and then got into a, an audio blog um, with blog talk radio, ran that for about two years, 106, I think it was episodes there they moved to a different platform, took up another show as well, Unraveling the Secrets with the now late Dennis Crenshaw. We lost Dennis a couple of days back. We'll come back to that one. Anyway, the Oopaloopa Cafe continued in one form or another up to and including a cable TV show here locally uh, that ran just for a couple of months, but it was running two hours a day every day completely live and I had a little trouble keeping up with that one so I haven't been busy with blogs in the Oopaloopa Cafe as much lately hey uh, and oh, wow. my my question is do you have dogs are always welcome on this show yes, any dog are. cats uh rats mice uh possums hedgehogs uh, no snakes are welcome Oh, they have to be oh, welcomed. Man. The Minto Minoans, they have to be. I will yeah, sack okay. it up on your uh, end. Okay. But um, is that footage still available, saved somewhere where you The can cable TV, uh, some of it's on YouTube, yes. Uh, but that wasn't the live production stuff. The live production stuff was not 
archived in any way. I made up after the <coughs> hectic pace got to me too much. I started making episodes here at home and uploading them to the cable station who then showed up over the cable station that most of those are still on YouTube, but they're chopped up into segments. So, and you, you used to spend all day preparing for, you know, or, or for the next day, or, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into this. And, and <coughs> now, now you don't have that time to do that, but it's still all in your brain. And if you needed to, you could certainly research whatever our topic was or next interviewee would be. Oh, sure. Yeah. I used to do 10 or 12 hours of prep for a two hour show. So I've got great news. Uh, there is, I wish she was here. Uh, that would be weird because it's morning, but um, I got a new assistant. A uh, Her name is Iris and she's wonderful. And she is, as my life coach says, bringing order to my chaos or attempting to, attempting to bring some order. Um, well, oh, I'll, be, I'll look forward to meeting Iris. You, uh, Gosh, you muted that? That was really professional, Rick. Did you mute that? Yes. Wow. I, she's going to have to teach me how to do that. Anyway, uh, sorting and organizing and asking questions. She's going to really help the podcast to go through all a bunch of books, my 5,000 books, and ask. She's going to be a help to us. So let's talk about um, your really good friend, and um, um, who just, uh, you know, just died. Uh, tell us about Dennis Crenshaw and his contribution to, uh, to all this stuff that we love. Well, Dennis was born in, I believe, just outside of Jacksonville, Florida, but he grew up in Houston, Texas. At the age of six, he was selling newspapers on a street corner. Um, at the age of 26, he was driving a cab in Anchorage, Alaska, and in the wintertime, he was driving cabin anchorage. In the summertime, he was up uh, looking for gold and found a little. Um, I didn't know Dennis as a young man. I didn't know Dennis until 1996 or so uh, because he had started his own web page called The Hollow Earth Insider. And The Hollow Earth was kind of a misnomer for what he was actually researching. He was researching UFOs and became aware that there was some kind of a connection, at least in the reports, between UFOs and hollow earth. Um, and off he went. And he, he completely stopped researching hollow earth about two years ago because it was just getting to him. And he started at that time writing a book about blues music and its origins in the United States. Um, I don't know where that project stands right now, and neither do his sons, but we're trying to figure that one out. Dennis was a, pretty much a daily correspondent of mine, whether by phone or email or whatnot, for the greater part of 15 years. Uh, talked to him every day, hours at a time, while we were working on the show Unraveling the Secrets. We also worked on a couple other shows together, but that one was hours. It took me literally a year and a half to talk him into doing that show. He didn't want to be on radio. He thought his Southern drawl was way too far out there. And it was intense, but people enjoyed it. And as well as his knowledge, his research base was immense. And 
I don't know how to describe it adequately, but it was a unique research pool of stuff. And he had uh, original paper copies of all of the fanzines from the 50s, the UFO and Flying Saucer, mostly they called it then, fanzines, uh, and some others. He had all the, the old 1950s and early 60s treasure magazines because he felt there was a connection in there too. So he was up on the Spanish end of what I research, the how the Spanish found the things and marked them with secret codes and whatnot. He was aware of this. He'd never gone into it in any depth. So we kind of meshed on that. Anyway, Dennis was a really good friend, an ace researcher. Uh, and as far as hollow earth, lore, myth, science, he had the best combination of stuff out there. And it's still alive as the hollow earth insider right now. It's still alive. Tommy and I are talking about what to do with it. So, so, so we're, um, flat earth is, you know, maybe one thing and that's probably not going on. You would say, but hollow earth is a possibility. The physics says it about has to be because at the exact center of the earth or any planet, the, the sum, the sigma of all of the gravitational acceleration would be zero. Everything would be pulled from the center out at that point. It's just the way mass works. Um, and uh, was Art Bell a uh, inspiration for you? Did you like what he did? Yes and no. Uh, Art was extremely good at finding answers from people who didn't want to give them. Uh, he could he could dig through the rhetoric and uh, mood swings in many cases and get to the answer that the audience needed. He was amazing in that regard. He was not a, a a science person per se, but he was a logic person, and he was very good at it. And yes, he was an inspiration to me. I never got to talk to Art directly um, when I appeared on. The show, it was after George Norrie was at the helm. It was before Art died, however. And what did you think that Art did not do well or wasn't good at? His homework was, he didn't do a lot of homework. If he knew somebody was coming on with a big topic, uh, he had a few favorite guests. He knew them very well and what they were going to say. And he was on top of all that. But if he had a new guest on, he had not delved into it to the degree where he could ask those iffy questions about, okay, well, if you're saying this, how about this part that people say is wrong? And we will, we will be great at that. We'll do preparation for everyone. You said a hundred episodes, you and I both know it's hundreds. There are so many people that will come on this show. It's just unbelievable. And they're not people that have been on shows all over. I mean, some of them are, and some of them are famous and TV and but a lot of them, hundreds, uh, they are small town or farm owners or people that don't want to show this stuff and because they don't want attention coming to them. Correct. Then there are also those people who have this artifact. <clears throat> it's certainly an artifact, may or may not be ancient, but they want tens of thousands of dollars for this carved rock. Uh, <clears throat> yes, it's a carved rock. 
we are going to incorporate share, screen sharing and image sharing and whatever. Iris will clearly tell me how to do that. I'm just kidding. It must be easy. But, um, you know, you had somebody in West Virginia that contacted you and said, I found this space, this stone. No, they, they didn't contact me. They had it on Facebook. Brenda found it and made me aware of it. So, and was so dig honest digging honest. a pool. Good, digging, always. Digging a swimming pool um, and found a, a carved, polished, carved, what looks to me in the one photograph, red granite, which is a very hard substance. Uh, very difficult to do that whole sculpting thing. It has a couple features that are apparently European style and origin, uh, but I don't have any proof of any of that as yet. Now, this is a huge crux of what we deal with. Some amateur finds something on their property, which they have a right to, the, the archaeologist is either, you know, would assume just I have so much to say, Rick, just say something about this. OK, the archaeologist is already defeated in performing archaeology on that piece because it's already out of the ground. It is no longer in situ. They cannot do the things that archaeologists do to that piece normally. <clears throat> However, had the guy stopped digging when he found it was something weird and said, come look at this he'd probably never seen it again because now they have something they can work with and they don't want it to be out in the wild as it were. And if it's, you know, if it's something that's anomalous or shouldn't be there, you know, that piece is thrown away and said it shouldn't have been there. That's just somebody dropped it out of their pocket. Oh, it's definitely a hoax, even though we found it in C2. But this is not conspiracy, Rick. Um, I'm I want to explain it to people, and we may or may not do it in this episode. We will prove it over time. But I got all my notes, and I got thousands of pages and everything. But this is the crux of it. You've got a boss, a state archaeologist at the top. He or she then, yeah, whoever's above that. But he or she then controls all the people below, all the way down to the historical societies, threatens them a quote by a lady was he burned my ass basically and also a quote is they uh you know told them not to come back here told those people to not come back don't bring those people back here is what the state archaeologist said and you know threatened to fire these people it's like so the person finds this artifact call them a liar, call them a drunk, call them a, a wife abuser, a, 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 a sexual predator, anything to uh, discredit special fines. And that has not happened with this little piece you just found. It probably won't happen, but it happens all the time. It does. Uh, there, there, I can highlight a couple of cases where that was uh, overcome and it was very hard, even in that case. Uh, even when all the evidence was there, it can still take decades to overcome that philosophy, because that's what it is. It's a philosophy. One of those cases was Lonzo Meadows. Early 1960s, Norwegian man and wife, one of whom was a degreed archaeologist, came across what they believed was evidence of a Viking colony at Lonzo Meadows 
uh, it's that's not Nova Scotia. I forget. Is Labrador? Oh, is, is it? it Maybe might be Labrador. Anyway, I thought it was Nova uh, Scotia. But. It might be, but it's far up north where there are no trees growing. So that meant that uh, if it were a Viking colony, there were no trees to build new boats. They had to import trees to do that. They did not import those trees from Greenland because, well, they had no trees. They did not import those trees from Norway because, well, they'd already used up all those trees to build the boats they used to get to Nova Scotia. <clears throat> so they were rebuilding boats. They had ships, nails. They had all these artifacts. And they were Scandinavian in origin. It still took roughly 30 years to convince the archaeological world that, hey, Scandinavians were in North America 500 years before Columbus. And it was a colony. It was not just a simple boat refitting station, refit them to go back to Europe. They had all the hardware, all of the fasteners, all of the technologies, and all of the cultural goods to have a colony. They had women. We know they had women because they had spindle whorls. They made wool. Men didn't do that. Uh, they had... Uh, what appeared to be swaddling clothes, they had babies. Um, uh, dirty diapers is what I'm saying. Um, there were all kinds of indications that this was a colony, but Parks Canada will not acknowledge that. Oh, it was a boat refitting station. So there's a, there's a philosophical difference in what is real and what will be admitted. Parks Canada does not want the sovereign nation of Canada, which is already losing some of its sovereignty to its native tribes, uh, to lose any more because there were Christians in North America before the French got there or before the Spanish got there. Their lines of sovereignty would be severed. So it, it comes down from the very top to, to not give in to all of this logic stuff. And you'll see, you know, the, the line of U.S. And, and Canada, that northern line goes right over Oil, Isle Royal, Isle yes. Royal, you know, somehow Benjamin Franklin or whoever, they knew to include the copper country right below. Well, the French did for sure, uh, because the French were advising Franklin on how to negotiate that whole treaty. That's why it's a treaty of Paris, incidentally. It took place in Paris. Uh, neutral territory, except that the French were not neutral. They hated the British and in some ways still do. Um, so Benjamin Franklin had the best coach is plural in the world for that particular part of the border. And if you look at that line, it comes, it comes across from the East coast, from your point of view on the camera, comes across from the East coast, goes up and around Isle Royal and then goes, continues West. Um, that was not coincidence. And that was before anyone had started mining copper up there or even figured out how to survive a winter up there a little on that. And so he would have known Benjamin Franklin being a not only serial womanizer, I believe, which is that, okay. Anyone can do whatever they want to do. But uh, who knows what the French, uh, you know, who, who he could have sex with. But um, he was obviously connected with, you know, Freemasons, and and a half a dozen other secret societies 
and including was, one that he founded himself and was so popular with people i believe and uh spent a lot of time over there so dialed in with france they knew that Copper mining was going on there back to 7,900 BC. Like um, they knew that it was secrets, just like the lodge secrets today of Native Americans or other lodges. You keep these things secret. You keep your trade route secret too. So if there was any trade going on between North America and the rest of the world, the Americas period with the rest of the world before Columbus, we'd never know it because it was kept secret. And so getting back to taking decades to get a site, this is major. So I heard this story of a commercial real estate guy and both sides, he had like 20 deals, both, he's a president, both sides are, they're button heads, they can't do all these deals, there's all these negotiations. He comes in and he goes, what do they want? Done. What do they want? Done. Done. And he would get 20 deals done, you know, that from simpleness, just put them together, put it. So the point is a person could walk up to that Leonx Meadows site after a month, a year and, and make conclusions. Now, yes, things take time and research and yes, but they don't take 30 years. They could, Correct. They could uh, be That was faster. definitely a political deal. Another political deal that somewhat got overcome took place in Michigan. Um, an amateur archaeologist, and he was he was good at the craft. He just didn't have the paper degree to go along with it. He discovered engraved stones, coin-like engraved stones, by the dozens on a beach you know, along a lake in Michigan. And uh, it wasn't sand. It was more loam and mud and whatnot. So he, he, he scooped out like a cubic foot of this and counted some of these coins inside one cubic foot of soil. No one would believe him. Years, it's a hoax. It's it's something other. It's you know, it's disc marks on a stone, eighty of them together. And anyway, that one was a really ridiculous explanation. So what he did was, he went and said, "Here, you take the next cubic foot and you do it." Guess what? They found eighty nine, <laughs> and and they have preserved the rest of the site. It's, it has something to do with the Indian lodges you mentioned. The Native American lodges have all kinds of secrets that we're not told, including how they used writing, how they transmitted messages over long distances without written on material uh, messages. Tons of things that they know how to do, but they won't tell us that they know how to do it. And they, apparently they don't tell all their population they know how to do it either. Yeah, no, they, it's the same structure. It's you don't tell everybody uh, a whole culture that we haven't learned that I never learned anything about in school was India and India being part of China, this massive, incredibly intelligent, smart, a trading operation going out of Mohenjo-Daro, which is where they mined, where they processed tin you know, copper, bronze, um, Mohenjo-Daro, India. Uh, and things are so simple. When you look at things are simple, it's like that was a major port. And so for some reason, we're not taught about India. Um, have you heard, Rick, the Vedas? Obviously, you know the Vedas. That the Brahmins, the white priests, 
run India and that the middle group are the medium skinned and then the lowest group is the dark skinned, that they really have this dark versus light skinned racism, whatever the word is, um, that goes on. I never heard of bronze. The caste system, they call it. But yeah. Um, and some of the best imported medical doctors I've ever met were from that lower end dark. I'm not going to name names, but he's amazing. Uh, at any rate, yes, the caste system is alive and well in India and Pakistan and, and a few other places. Um, when Alexander the Great invaded Afghanistan, nobody knew it except Alexander the Great. He didn't change anything. He established a whole new palace and, and court system that nobody cared about in all of Afghanistan. And that's when he stopped even trying to go to India. He wanted to conquer India because of those resources you mentioned. That's what all of Alexander's wars were for. Resource availability. And that's what mostly all wars are. The current conflict in Afghanistan is about two other things. Uh, there's a, a couple of rare earth salts and uh, rare earth metals present in Afghanistan that you can't find anywhere in the, uh, in the world in any abundance. And of course, there's always poppies and, well, pot. Uh, some of the best in the world by all accounts. I don't do any of that stuff, really. But um, not Afghani. But the, the resources is what all wars are about, including when the United States gets involved. Say, Iran-Iraq War, 1980, up until 1988, we were fine. We were back in Saddam because we didn't like Iran when we didn't want Iran having control of the swamp oil along their border. Well, that changed when Saddam invaded Kuwait, who was also a really good trading partner of us. At any rate, it's all about resources and who controls them and how much they can get out of them. That's been going on for, well, I don't know, since about 7900 AD, uh, BC. Um, you go back to who was doing it. We don't know the answer to that. 7900 BC was a very long time ago. And, well, they kept their trade route secret. In fact, they kept a lot of their trade partners secret, who they were trading with. Um, we are in the dark in that regard. All we can do is look at artifacts and compare and contrast to artifacts from other places in the world. The Minoans, for instance, had a little disc about this big. It was, we call it the Phaistos disc, and it has one, maybe two different stories on it, one on one side, one on the other. And those stories are told with symbols. One of those symbols that repeats itself is an oxide symbol, oxide ingot, which is very common for ancient copper trade. It's from about 1500 BC. So it was late in the game compared to when it actually started. When you go look at the archaeological record of when did the Copper Age start in the Middle East, it was 7,000 years ago. Okay, that's great. If you go look at the ice cores from Greenland, when did copper smelting start? About 7,900 BC. So 900 years before it was in the Middle East, it was someplace else. We don't know where. All we have is the, the stuff that came out of the atmosphere into the ice 7,900 years ago. So we have an ongoing issue with where did the Copper Age really start? 
Well, it's beautiful. And where did it really come from? I mean, I, I read that, you know, they're like, where did the copper come from? And they're like, what do they say? They say, oh, Monaco, India, little, but, but there's not enough there, you know, on Cyprus to fuel the Bronze Age. The copper is over in America. The, there wasn't enough copper in the Minoan civilization itself to provide the bronze used by the Minoan civilization, let alone trade it out to everywhere else. It's, it's a consumption. It's a, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's a bargain. The estimates are a billion tons of copper extracted. Maybe it's a half a billion, maybe it's hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds, but it's a tremendous amount. And these, uh, it's just not, it's not known. We it will be known. So interesting um, thing about copper in the earth, there is copper everywhere. It's it's throughout the entire surface of the earth. However, it's not in high purity and and high concentration areas anywhere on the earth except for Upper Michigan and Isle Royal, and even that's becoming depleted as we move along. But the copper that was available in the old world, Ireland had a tiny little bit. Um, the Swiss Alps had a tiny little bit, and it's apparently all mined out. Um, Mauritania had a, a fairly substantial group of tin, but not enough to do everything. Um, and of course, Cornwall and Land's End, it was almost all tin. You couldn't walk without walking on tin and it was and that's because of a rift that had formed there 400 million years ago and left it on the edge of what is now england but you find these little spots all over the surface of the earth that have high purity metals that oozed up out of the earth hundreds of millions of years ago and they're still left there at uh Keweenaw peninsula in michigan and isle royal it's because of the superior rift the lake superior is a rift lake it's not just a a low place it's actually the earth pulling itself apart and when that first started some 300 million years ago it the copper probably just spurted up out of the planet onto the surface and cooled off and formed whatever it is now because for so. some reason right there the copper is so pure and um you have when it's so pure you do less work smelting and melting and uh, high temperatures needed to, uh, you know, so when it's that pure, it's, you know, easiest. Right. It's low intensity salvage or uh, harvest, if you want to call it that. When they, when they would take it someplace and turn it into blister copper, that was, and that's a, a low temp melt that doesn't achieve what true smelting does. Uh, it's still pretty pure copper, after a blister pack is made, but it's in a form that's more easily shipped. It's, it's not any, not really much lighter in weight than a solid copper piece because of the way they do it, but it is more brittle uh, because it's been work hardened or heat hardened. And when it gets to the actual workplace, guy just breaks off a piece and uses it. You can't right. do that with a pure cup. All right, so we don't know where this show is going to go. I've got a thousand things to talk about. Somehow we're going to talk about this. So I heard a fabulous thing. I need to know the exact quote. Basically, the ancients in a group believed that the gold was the sun's tears and the silver was the moon's 
but I don't know. But uh, <laughs> I liked that. I'm going sun's tears and the moon's tears. I don't know. Let's go with that. Um, so gold was always and is, to my understanding, the best, is it electrical conductor? And yes. has always been. Um, copper is second. It's lot, copper is light, easier to mold or whatever. Actually, actually silver second, copper's third. And, and uh, mercury is, so I guess they were doing work with mercury back in the day as possibly, yes. what are your thoughts about possibly powering a, a craft or, or during World War II, they used mercury for, you know, UFOs. What do you think? Uh, I'm not, I was not a part of any of that, nor a witness of any of it, uh, as far as how the engines work. But they were gathering two different things in the 1990s, and this was the U.S. Navy. They were gathering bismuth and mercury, and they had what they called uh, calls to industry on how much of each of those could be produced in a year. If the Navy would would <laughs> would pull what they called an X contract, uh, now the and I believe it was all a cover story. The Navy said that the bismuth would be used to make new bullets that would not cause lead poisoning. It's like, yeah, sure. Right. Anyway, um, the, the mercury, I never did find any even excuse for why they wanted to acquire all the mercury the world could produce in a year. And I never did find any uh, calls for proposals on actually buying it but there were definitely those two calls to industry calls for information um, it's weird because if the navy didn't want to use lead in their bullets why didn't the army do the same thing they didn't like, cover that track <laughs> right so ancient mercury what could they have been using that for could have could have been used for a number of things um it can make an amalgam with copper, with silver, with any almost any other of the heavy metals, including gold, which makes which changes all of the characteristics, the ductility, the hardness, uh, melt temperature. All these things are changed when you make an alloy. So they could have been using it to make some sophisticated alloy that we cannot possibly credit them with because they couldn't possibly have been sophisticated as much as we are um <clears throat> but anyway that's that's neither here nor there we know that uh, we speculate that let me rephrase that the inca used mercury to make scale models of their hydrological systems in other words how did water flow down their mountains we have a, a nearly perfect i mean to the one one thousandth of a millimeter perfect scale model of uh, i believe it's cusco might be machu picchu one of them they found it at the near the base of the mountain and when you put and it had traces of mercury on it so when you poured mercury at the top it showed how it flowed down the mountain so on an irrigation scheme like they had there this would have been a useful tool that's one so speculation but possibly used to power a craft uh you know et cetera et cetera et cetera so you know we go to a lot of these grave sites up in the up uh, i went to a special 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 one 
um, you know, where these, this quartz crystal is at the top of these earthen mounds or rock piled mounds, which are burials. And you're always told when you go to these sites, use your eyes, look around. That is special. You know, these rocks are talking to you, speaking to you. That quartz crystal, which is chunked into whatever the stone is, is put on top of that mound. Do you have any idea why that could be? <clears throat> no. What, what, I, what I do know is what quartz crystal can do. It can generate an electrical signal or it can take an electrical signal and turn it into motion. It's basically how a quartz watch works. Um, so if there were some function, some technological function of it, it would almost certainly be related to those characteristics of the crystal itself. However, if it's a spiritual function, I have no idea. And that's okay. That's, that's part of that whole secret thing. And that's okay, but it's all over and it means something and it warrants investigation. And, um, you know, a lot of these sites are on private properties and nobody ever walks to them for years, decades, nobody walks through them and that's why they're preserved. So yeah. um, let's see, Rick, what's uh, just a few last things. Um, there's just so much to talk about and we're having fun doing it. Um, <laughs> I think the... Uh, you know, talking about resources, George Bush Sr. supposedly bought 300,000 acres in Uruguay, which is surprisingly one of the top two safest, uh, or not safest, uh, best run countries in South America or Central America, but with water underneath. So there's water underneath. An old man buys that, or whenever he was, but you're buying water. You'd obviously have to have an army to protect that water if you want to drink it or use it for something. But these smart people, the CIA connections, they are buying, whether that's islands, lands, water, resources, tell us a story and then we'll call it a day so I can pee. Um, in Upper Michigan, the water rights are fairly held very close to the vest by people who can. And the rest of them are being bought up by outfits like, say, Nestle or Coca-Cola. They want to con those entities, whether it's a private landowner, uh, and I can think of another one who's a good friend of, well, an acquaintance of both of ours, um, buying up land that has natural spring water. Because it is a natural resource that you really can't duplicate with a well. I've heard, you know, that Vegas ha has half the water, you know, the, their lake is half filled, that they're going to run out of water. I think Florida is going to be underwater at some point. Does that yeah, sound be, right? Well, no, it doesn't Venice? sound right. But, but in, in Florida, the biggest problem is you're sucking all the water out of the aquifer and the limestone collapses underneath or over the top of the void. So you have sinkholes and whole car dealerships disappear overnight. But Venice is going to be underwater in Italy. Well, if, if this whole global warming thing is true, but um, it, it is not as high now as it was a thousand years ago. So what, what is your conclusion on the global warming just from listening to all sides? And, and you know, what what is a safe thing to say that we don't know? Uh, we don't know. We we want to guess. We as scientists want to know that we're right, but we're never sure because 
we're going on theory. This is all a theory. Uh, the CFCs in the atmosphere is going to cause all the ozone to go away. Well, the ozone holes have been shrinking ever since that announcement. They moved to. The new ozone holes grow and they wane and they disappear. It's not because of anything we put in the atmosphere. It's because of the way sunlight strikes the atmosphere at the poles where the magnetic pole, magnetic force or field is the strongest. It's some kind of an interaction we just don't understand. We as scientists don't know everything, but we like to pretend that we do. It's a belief system. Yes. And, you know, um, God, it, it, our egos are so massive. And when you go against, you know, what I believe or what I have said is correct. I have said this is true. And how dare you? How dare you question that? Yeah, I mean, it is, it is the antagonist of free speech. Our speech is being suppressed tremendously. Uh, a lot of these topics you can't find on the internet. I'm not saying that it's shielded. It's just a lot of topics that I know about that people tell me about. It is hard to find on the internet. I'll just tell you that, that yeah. the searches do not make certain things easy that I'm looking for. So um, I think we can expose this, Rick. I know we can, and it pisses me off and I'll try to be non-reactive. You know, when we talk to these people, it's, uh, but it is frustrating because what we know is a lot of truths and we don't get out there as pe people knowing this stuff. And it's frustrating. Yes. Uh, and it's in all fields. Uh, it's not just archaeology, history or anthropology. It's in all fields. You have the Ipsy Dixit thing of I said so. So anyway, yeah, we'll move on. We'll find find the holes in the logic just like the the hoaxes that can be proven to not be hoaxes we'll pick a topic and go into it and find an answer there are so many topics that we have rick you and i can just smile and just whoever's listening just trust us this is uh this is going to be a lot of fun we will not yep. let you down so uh thank you rick i appreciate it buddy good job we'll talk again real soon Okay. Have a good day, buddy. Bye. You too. Bye-bye.